0: Today on The Public Morality, we speak with former aide Martin Luther King, Jack O'Dell, about his life and his more than 60 years fighting for justice and equality. That's next on The Public Morality. And before we get started, on behalf of The Public Morality, let me be among the first to wish you a happy 92nd birthday.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Well,
0: I, I know it says 92, but I still haven't seen your your ID because I I'm not sure. I I think it's wrong. I I, I don't believe it. You, I, I don't
2: believe it either <laughs> for different reasons. But you,
1: yeah, but you're still in the fight. I don't believe it either, bro. <laughs> so yeah, but it, it's true. Yes, yeah, my my 92nd, and uh, I feel very blessed to have lived uh, long enough to see some things happen and and been involved in a few things that. Uh, are worthwhile
0: talking about. Let's talk about those things. In fact, I want to begin by you sort of taking us through your journey and your involvement in the fight for social justice. Talk about how you got started. Some of some of the early uh, moments in, in your life.
1: I don't. Know, I don't know whether I, the early moments, of course, are usually your childhood. But I, I, I lived in Detroit. I was born in Detroit. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, my grandparents raised me, uh, and uh, my grandfather was a. Janitor at the public library. Uh, that was a very that was a very good beginning because um, the Detroit was an industrial town, uh, working class people, as and, and is, is well known. Detroit had something like 725,000 people as population then, and uh, it grew through the war period. And an automobile, because the automobile comes from there. And it's interesting that it's now 725000 It went to, to $2 million. And that's a story in itself.
0: Mm-hmm, indeed.
1: <laughs> but um, uh, we lived on the west side of Detroit, and uh, it was a nice neighborhood. All the kids played, you know, running up and down the street. People sat on their porch. If Joe Lewis was fighting somewhere, you, the radios would be on all of them down the oh. avenue. <laughs> It was a community. It was a community, and I I guess I learned the the basis and the the comfort of a child living in a community. If anything happened that was unusual, Uh, word would get out, and then something would, corrections would be made. In other words, you know, we never felt alienated in any way. Um, My folks were from from Topeka, Kansas. Um, My family is... uh, my mother's family was from New Orleans and settled in Ohio. My father's family was uh, was from Kentucky and settled in Topeka, Kansas. And then we we came. They came into uh, into Detroit during World War One and uh, went into the automobile industry and so forth. So uh, I, I really feel blessed. Um, because my my childhood was very uh, comfortable, in the sense that uh, uh, we lived in a very nice neighborhood, friendly, um, pr- you know, productive people. Uh, my school, Northwestern High School, was ranked number nine in the United States of America, not in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could there were, you know, very very interesting topics one could take while in high school. So if you came out of there with a high school education, you had the opportunity, you had the opportunity to have really gotten a good one. And I went to college at Xavier in, in, in the New Orleans and I went into the pharmacy. I was studied at pharmacy. And then World War II broke out, and I went into the Merchant Marines. And I went into the Merchant Marines because uh, there was a union called the National Maritime Union that didn't have any uh, segregation. And I had I had seen so much of segregation down in Louisiana in the two and a half years that I was there. Uh, and I, when I registered for the draft, I registered in my in in Detroit mm-hmm. and told them, you know, that uh, because even though I wasn't living in Detroit at the time, I, I resented the segregation. But we, the, the African American community, had a double DP uh, proposal or pledge. Uh, we understand the necessity to defeat fascism and so and to win victory over it. but there was a victory at home that was was needed attention as well. and so as 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 many people might know from history study or whatever that uh, uh, under a Philip Randolph and others' leadership, we had a double v black Americans got drafted into the to the armed forces and accepted our responsibility to to, to defeat fascism at home. But there was a racist institutional framework at home. At home, uh, fascism abroad. But there was a racist institutional framework at home that we also were concerned with, and so we had a, a double motivation to see that uh, our nation participated uh, with others in victory over fascism at home, abroad. But um, at the same time, uh, that 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 victory would not blind us to the fact that uh, there was now, uh, after that victory, uh, an emphasis on ending racism at home.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that was a very, uh, you know, that was a very comfortable proposition and when I say, in other words, it's like we weren't burying something that we had resentment for in order to deal with 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 fascism abroad. Uh, no, we, we it wasn't over with. The war wasn't over with. The, the the war had ended but the struggle was not over with mm-hmm. and um, so I became active you know in that I was in the uh, Merchant Marines as I said and I joined and in the Merchant Marines my union didn't have any segregation and they had a labor school and you had to get elected by the by the tr- by the uh, crew to go to labor school I was elected to the NMU labor school in its job was to study study the labor the labor contract and uh, why there had been a strike in the in the in the, in the 1930s uh, to to build the union to establish the union and what it meant to have a democratic union um, uh, for the working people. So uh, that you know all that was part of a general education that. Um, helped me to see my way if you will mm-hmm. in the post war world and uh after going to the NMU labor school I uh, w- the unfinished business of of the CIO as some people remember the CIO was to organize the unorganized in the south and so I uh, volunteered for that in Miami Florida organizing hotel and restaurant workers uh, for t- t- two and a half years my father had a restaurant down in Miami and so I worked at the at his place uh, uh, in the evening, and in the daytime I was helping to organize hotel and restaurant workers over in Miami Beach. Anyway, that's that's mm-hmm. that's my entering into my adult period.
0: Right. No, no, it, it's um, it's important because it, it, it you with the maritime and then your labor labor organizing. Um at what point um and i 'm going to follow up with this but what year was it when when you joined the communist Party and why and, and explain to our listeners why you joined the Communist Party?
1: Oh, well, one of the reasons I laid this foundation for you mm-hmm. is because people act like joining the Communist Party was some you know some freakish thing you know mm-hmm. uh I was in the labor movement and there were leftists in the labor movement and who were in the communist party on this uh, um, um On the ships, you know, in the evening we'd be playing cards, but we'd be talking politics, you know. Mm -hmm. And I found the communists very, very intelligent, open-minded people, and they had a theory. They had a theory that the working class should be running the country, not the corporations. And while that might sound radical, I mean, there was nothing subversive about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, so um, anyway, I I first got in the Southern Negro Youth Congress, uh, which was a a left-leaning uh, organization of Youth in the post-war. It had been founded in 1937, and had his headquarters uh, in uh, Birmingham. Um, when I was working with the, uh, uh, when I was working in Miami, I joined the Miami chapter of the Southern Negro Youth Congress uh, because they were care- taking care of uh, youth, youth uh, things that were going on in, in that segregated city. And uh, I went from there. And, of course, I said I was in the NMU. And um, and then I joined the Communist Party uh, in 1950, 1950. And I joined the waterfront section of the Communist Party in New, in new York because the, the Coast Guard had uh, arbitrarily canceled our wartime uh, credentials and said that you had to get brand-new credentials. Credentials. Well, that was a way of helping the right-wing uh, grouping in the National Maritime Union to clean out the union. In other words, our credentials as seamen were were perfectly good for uh, the war, but that after and this is and this is ten years after the war, seven years after the war ended. Mm-hmm. War ended in 1945. This is 1950, 51. Um, everybody had to turn in their 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 credentials that they had used, sometimes in a lifetime, I mean, because the credentials that some guys had been in this since the 30s. They had to turn those in and get new credentials. Well, you didn't get new credentials except by the will of the, of the Coast Guard, and they had their list. Um, but anyway, I joined the Commons Party Waterfront sections to, Section to, to, to fight that uh, particular uh, program of dispossession, that the Coast Guard had inaugurated, and of course that went on for eight years through the '50s and uh, finally a, a federal court in down in the West Coast said that the uh, screening program was unconstitutional and restored it, but the damage had been done mm-hmm. in other words in other words, they didn 't consult with the seamen or nothing or give no reason in, in one thousand nine hundred and fifty to inaugurate that program in the first place because it was a a program to 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 uh, ferret out from that industry some very progressive people, but then when it could de- determined to be unconstitutional, uh, uh, eight years later, well, you know, <laughs> the, the work had been done. Uh,
0: if I you know I've never asked you this question, well, uh, yeah. you, during your time, did you um, uh, have any interactions with Paul Robeson?
1: Oh yes, indeed. First of all, Paul Robeson is my is my frat brother. I mean, but when I went away to college, my mom, one of the last things my mother said to me, now, if you decide to go into fraternity, go Alpha. And I said, well, my mom what about that? You know, Paul Robeson's an Alpha. Oh! <laughs> 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 and my mother knew the Robeson's from, from, from Washington, D.C., because um, she'd gone to Howard. Uh, and the Robeson's uh, were in Washington for a, a number of years. So, yeah, Paul Robinson's an idol of mine, and... um uh, and he came to our help uh, at the time of, uh, of the, uh, the screening program at the Coast Guard because he was an honorary member of our National Maritime Union. We had elected him an honorary member in 1947. So this is 1950, so they had a, we had a couple of meetings at uh, one of the guys' house, had a plate of spaghetti and everything, and Paul came in and sat down with us and went over what the situation was. Well, he had gotten his passport lifted about the same time, if you recall. Mm-hmm. You know, so this was all one program, really. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was one program to isolate the progressive elements in the country, and subject them to uh, dispossession. Uh, in Paul Robeson's case, he didn't, he couldn't have. Now he had traveled all over the world since the 1920s, but he couldn't get a pass. His passport was revoked, and uh, uh, in, ni- in, uh, in, ni- in 1949, I was at Peekskill with the guys, with his right to. Have this concert in Peekskill, which is now famous for having having the, the riot there to prevent him from uh, having his concert. But he had his passport lifted, and then in, in 1957, uh, Prime Minister Nehru issued a, di- a, a declaration on behalf of the Indian government that Paul Robeson should be given his passport back and that we we would like to see him again. And, and the State Department said, well, they don't want to lose India, so therefore. Uh, maybe they better give Paul Robeson. So Paul Robeson got his passport back in 1958. I mean, I'm trying to convey the the, the style and the the, the 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 duplicity that's involved. You see?
0: I'm yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm listening to it, and, and one of the things that sort of came to mind was historically speaking, you know, communism has been given a bad word in our in our, in our discourse. But there's something about you and uh, and Paul Robeson. That while they would lift his passport, there was not very much thought to the reason someone, especially uh, African-Americans, would want to be communist in the first place. Mm-hmm. There was little discussion uh, no. or thought
1: about that. That's right. That's a great hidden secret. Why would any black person who couldn't, couldn't eat in, in a restaurant in Miami or, or New Orleans or, or had to sit behind the screen on the bus, why would anybody like they would want to be communist? <laughs> when they had been the the leading fight getting the NMU to be a progressive non segregated union, the Siemens unions were segregated except for the National Maritime Union, but it was the biggest union in maritime union in the country. We had a hundred thousand members. My book number was ninety two thousand one hundred thirty four. Wow, that was a left wing union. I mean, so you know, it it, it is like. Denying reality in order to create a mysticism about a particular um, about a particular organization. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party fought for the unity of the workers, that that was the only way for them to make real advances as a union, and the whole CIO was based on based on that principle until the anti-communist program came along in, in the post-war period, which was 1947, mm-hmm. and the United States had declared itself leader of the free world and an Iron Curtain had descended in Eastern Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us
0: how you met Martin Luther King.
1: Well, I um, I knew Clarence Jones and, and a number of people in New York. Well I lived in New York about six years. And um, there was a um, – well, first of all, Martin, Martin we, we, I didn't meet Dr. King, but I had been working in uh, a, a – um, in an insurance business, protective industrial insurance company, uh, and I was uh, in in Birmingham at the time of the Montgomery bus boycott. And so uh, I worked uh, in Birmingham a year and uh, training agents, and then the the president promoted me to become a manager of the Montgomery district. So I moved to the Montgomery district, about the same time that uh, Stanley Levison and, and Clarence Jones and them and so were planning a youth march for integrated schools because the, the process of changing the school system's patterns had been so slow since the 54 decision of the Supreme Court. They said we need to organize the youth to have a youth march and petition campaign to end school to tell We're going to take to Congress. This was 1958. So I contacted them and told them that, um, you know, I think that was a very good idea to have a youth march and petition, and that uh, as a member of um, National Maritime Union, I had some contacts. Uh, as a, Well, I had been in the National Maritime Union, but as a member of a Alpha Phi Alpha, I had some contacts in the, uh, in the schools, in the colleges in the south, and I was willing to volunteer to organize uh, to participate in, in organizing some of the colleges used to distribute the petitions, so that their petition campaign could be successful. And they got back to me and said, "Fine." So I did that, uh, and so that was a that was a march on Washington, a youth march on Washington, for a youth march and petition campaign. Well, I circulated. I went to, to a number of my fraternity chapters of Alpha Phi Alpha. Uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, North Florida and Br- uh, Birmingham and uh, uh, Montgomery and, uh, and, and and especially in Atlanta, and so I would I would uh, tell them what the thing was all about and give them a petition and then and tell them how they can get some more to sign. So they, the you know the people the brothers in the chapters opened opened up meetings for me, and so they were getting. These messages back from me order of, of groups ordering copies of the petition for circulation. And so, you know, they come to, and say, who is, who is this Jack O'Dell? So after that event w- occurred, I had a chance to meet Dr. King and the others, you know, and I, that was my original uh, entree to them.
0: You've, you've asked this before, but I, I, I want to I ask you again, um, inter- internally, yeah. talk about his leadership style.
1: Well, Dr. King was a was a very um, modest person, uh, but also very bright. He was a very sophisticated preacher, and um, you know he had uh, he had studied in New England uh, and got his doctorate. and He was a Hegelian philosopher, and Hegel was one of the German philosophers that was part of the European Enlightenment. But Dr. King was a Hegelian, and um, he was quite prepared to lead. Uh, but he not not but he but he also came from a a, a preaching family,
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: they had you know they had been in the baptist national Baptist convention for many years. He was a third generation of that, um and he had this uh, his church in in birmingham had been in the family for a number of years but he he was a very um thoughtful, very easy person to approach. And when I say thoughtful, he listened to what you had to say. He wasn't so busy trying to tell you something that he didn't hear what you said. And I noticed at staff meetings, you know, he would put out an idea that he had, and he would subject it to to criticism and whatever. Let's see what the the, the staff thinks about it. And at the end, he would summarize what had been said and tell you what his decision was. Well, that's, that's, that's the kind of leadership that you want to follow, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because he's not—he didn't have the kind of ego that he was. Dr. King, and you know, he'd do what I say. Uh, there was there was an opportunity for everybody to grow from what he had proposed. In terms, if he knew something about it, he would put it on the table and say, "This is the reason I think we ought to do this." And then we would look at it and see, "Well, Reverend, I think so and so and so, but maybe we need to do something else." And he would make some changes in the plans. But once we agreed from top to bottom, then we know what we had to do.
0: Now, one of the things, and I, again, this is something I know that you and I have discussed before, but one of the myths in civil rights history was that the campaign in Albany, Georgia, was a failure for Dr.
1: King. You don't see it that way. No, and the people in Albany, Georgia, don't see it that way. <laughs> <laughs> not, I, not just me. No, nobody we, we, Nobody saw it that way in our, in our group in Albany, Georgia, because Albany, Georgia set a new standard for the movement. Mm-hmm. They said that every other movement focused on one or another aspect of getting rid of segregation, or oh, we want segregation to end in, in the lunch counters downtown, or we want segregation to end, uh, you know, uh, on the bus. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. They they picked out specific aspects of the segregation system. Albany, Georgia said that we not we gonna fill the jails, and we want segregation abolished in, in every aspect of life. We don't we, we don't have a program of selective desegregation. Segregation is an insult wherever it exists in our life, and we want it all abolished. So the point is that um, the people try to say that that movement was a failure. That movement was a great success because it was on the eve of the march on Washington, and when we got to Washington, that was exactly what the demand was. It was the Albany Georgia created demand. Segregation ended everywhere.
0: And in between the march on Washington and Albany, uh, you all stopped in Birmingham. Talk that's a, right. talk that's about right. that, and 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 uh, our dear friend Bull Connor.
1: Well, that's better known than most than most uh, of these, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I need to tell you too much about it. Um, but uh, I think that the great contribution that the movement made. in in Birmingham was that it surfaced the brutality which was the basis for the implementation of segregation. Segregation was not maintained by a a gentleman's agreement between the blacks and the whites. Segregation was made by police brutality, in other words, and, and they demonstrated that when we decided to break it up. You remember that the, the great example, the picture of the, the segregationists uh, bringing in the fire hose. Mm-hmm. That fire hose that they turned on black folk could take the, mark, the bark off of a tree. It, it has such, that kind of a strength, knock you down. What, so we saw we saw the brutality that was behind the segregation system, which had become so normal for people it was implemented. You know, with, with, it was you know it was implemented as if it was just the southern way of life. And I'm glad to say that it that when President Kennedy saw it on television, that's when he decided to take his stand. Mm-hmm. He said it sickened him, and therefore he was going to draft a, a, a civil rights bill that he was going to pass on to Congress. He hadn't decided to do anything. He was sympathetic to it, but he hadn't decided to do anything on segregation per se until he saw that Birmingham demonstration. And, and he told his brother, he said, well, I'm not going to, no, this has got to go. No, no, I'm not going to preside over this as president. And so there are three things that he, he did. He did that, and then he did the American University speech in which he attacked the Cold War. He said, you know, we have differences with the Soviet Union uh, because we're a capitalist country, and, you know, we're proud of it, but there can be some changes here as well as there might be changes there. He said, but we don't have differences with any country that we would go to nuclear war and blow the world up. So that was a turning point, you see? I mean, that same, that 1963 period was a turning point, 62, 63, where the movement, by its capacity to be nonviolent, exposed the violence of the system. That had been presented to the country as just a oh gentleman's agreement. You know, we sit behind the screen on the, on the bus, and uh, uh, we know we can't go into this restaurant, although it's a public restaurant. We wouldn't go up there if we didn't have the money. But no, that's not the point. Or um, if you're in a public school, you 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 go into a separate school, or if you're in the public school, you have a separate lunch count. Well, you know, I mean, that whole that whole edifice was for the first time exposed. To the American public through the through the, the new methods of, uh, of news gathering.
0: So you mentioned President Kennedy, and when he finally decided to sign um, a, or endorse and support a civil rights bill, I should say, behind the scenes he wanted something in return, which, uh, as you know well, he wanted King to fire you and Stanley Levinson. Uh, why?
1: Well, he anticipated that that um, since we were called communists. And again, I had left the Communist Party, not because I was mad with them or anything like that. I saw I saw the Civil Rights Movement growing, and I knew that the country had created this anti-communist foolishness. So therefore, you know, I left the Communist Party just like I joined it. What is, what is what's, what's so, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, wasn't, in, I wasn't in the Merchant Marines any longer. I was, I was working in, in the restaurant business. But he, President Kennedy, was a politician. And he knew that the that the uh, presence of uh, people who thought to be commons in any relation to him would be a weapon that the segregationists would use to attack his program. The Civil Rights Bill was no communist bill, but these kind of distortions were, went, went with the way of life of that period.
0: And that was Hoover supplying him with that information. Oh,
1: yes, yes, yes. And J. Edgar Hoover had a list of two, 3,000 people that if there was a national emergency, they were going to lock up communists and others. The FBI had, had a list of several thousand Americans that were going to be arrested under certain conditions at one time, like a sweeping, uh, like a sweep of, of jailings.
0: So, so let me see if I understand this. You, now, you all were in Birmingham. You were taking on city government. Yes. Yeah. And because George Wallace was the governor, you were also taking on the state of Alabama at the time. That's right. And you had, up until that point, you had, let's say, lukewarm support from the Kennedy administration But at the same time, you also had, from another portion of the Kennedy administration, you had outright
1: hostility in the face of J. Edgar Hoover. Did did I get that right? Yeah, except J. Edgar Hoover was not part of the administration. J. Edgar Hoover operated, you know, the FBI is there regardless of who is the administration. Yeah, you follow me? No, no, I understand. But he was working for opportunity. But, 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 but he was supposed to be the guardian of the, you know, of the security of the country. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing is that they they produce this food since about the communists were a menace to America.
2: That's well, where he comes
1: in. You see, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. where. The, I mean, there are communist parties all over the world. the The, the Italian Communist Party finished second in the nineteen forty eight elections. I, I was in Paris several years after that. Uh, in a little town outside, I I was in Paris, but I was in a meeting in a little town outside of Paris, and I found out that um, just through this meeting that uh, there had never been a communist mayor of Paris, but there there was about five cities that surrounded Paris that had, you know, a couple hundred thousand people Mm -hmm. in each of them, and every one of them had a communist mayor at some point.
0: So it wasn't wasn't this real threat that everybody was afraid of here. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and and, I mean, it's ridiculous. But ridiculous as it was, it was the politics of the United States of America. There's a lot, you know, There's, a, you don't have to go too far to find something ridiculous in the United States. You know? I mean, so was segregation. You ask some. I mean, you know, a person goes into a restaurant, they expect it to be able to pay for the meal. How come they can't be served? What is supposed to be the intelligent rationale? Oh, it was just a southern way of life. Well, where does that come from? Slavery? I mean, the South is supposed to be part of the United States of America. But, you know, history gets stood on its head sometimes.
2: <laughs> and you have to be
1: prepared for that and bring it back to, to some kind of normalcy where people can reason uh, things. And blacks said, this is unreasonable. That's why we had the double V. So when we were willing really, we to be drafted into a Jim Crow army to fight fascism abroad, but our V is a double V. We don't care if nobody else have one. We're not coming back and remaining complacent about this system of segregation after we get got through fighting fascism, which was a form of racism in Europe.
0: Talking with Jack O'Dell here at the public reality, let me ask you, when you left the SCLC,
1: mm. what did you do after that? Oh, well, I was I uh, I went to work with Freedom Weiss magazine, which was a blessing. Mm-hmm. Talk about it was, that. Because uh, here was a progressive magazine, African-Americans, uh, which would fund Esther Jackson and other of those who I had known in the Southern Negro Youth Congress, and she invited me to join the staff. And she had called she they had formed Freedom, Freedom Ways in 1961, and she invited me then. To, I said, No, I'm really quite occupied with SCLC, and I really don't feel as though that I could uh, give the attention uh, that getting a magazine off the ground. I would have the time to do it. So it, by by the end of '63. Uh, you know, I was available to to join the staff, and I did. And it was a, a blessing because I had the opportunity to begin to do writing for the movement, which I had not had the time to do before. You know, when you're busy organizing people, this is not a whole. You might little like you might keep a little memo, you know, of your own. But the idea of writing articles and stuff, interpreting, um, you know, it, that's 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 a challenge unto itself. So um so I so I joined uh Freedom Ways and it was a quarterly review of the movement and it came four times a year and I was actually and I was invited to be one of the managers. Uh where were you
0: when you learned that um, Dr. King had been assassinated?
1: I was delivering Freedom Ways to a bookstore in New York. I lived in New York in Harlem and I was delivering a bookstore there were two bookstores that, uh, that Took Freedomways bundles monthly, and um, it was about oh about five thirty in the evening Eastern time. And Miss um, Brown, who uh, was one of the ladies that worked in the books of when she saw me, she ran up to me and said, uh, "Jack, Dr. King's been shot." I said, "No, no, I don't. where did you hear that?" He said, "No, he, he's been he's been shot. He was in Memphis." I said, yeah, I knew he was in Memphis because I talked to Andy Young a couple of weeks ago and I knew he was going back. Well, he's been shot. Oh, I said, oh, man!" And so I took, I left their quota of the magazines, and I had another delivery to make in the, in, in Harlem, which was about oh, 25, 30 minutes away. So I went on and made that other delivery. It was at another black bookstore. And I said, yeah, I'll go back by Miss Brown's and see what's going on. And when I went back, she met me at the door. She said, "He's dead, Jack." I said, "Oh no, Miss Brown, that's no." She said, "No, no, he's gone." And um, I don't know, man. I feel that right today, man. That was just—it was just unbelievable. I know he went back to to do the second march in support of the garbage workers, sanitation workers, but. You know, to register that Martin Luther King was gone. Uh, he just so I was living in Harlem. This is 125th Street, and I lived up on 35th Street. So I walked home, and suddenly there was a kind of a pall over my life, as if, as if it was just beginning of dusk, and it was almost like people had heard something that they hadn't heard before. There was an eerie silence, because this was time when people be coming home from work. And it was all—I mean, it's just—it might have been my imagination, it just, or my state of mind, stuff. But it just seemed like there was a there was a level of of eerie quiet that settled over that particular part of town. And by the time I got home and turned on the radio, a whole lot had broke loose. I mean, people were just. They were saying no, no, no. This, this, this is not going to happen. You're going to pay for this. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like a resistance that was violent had broken loose. Mm-hmm. But it was, it, it was. Now, it might have been my own psychology. I don't know. But it was just there was a cycle. You know what I mean? And you, you went there to deliver the magazine. You heard this news. You went to another stop to deliver some more magazine, and came back to the, a deeper meaning to the news that he's gone. And then you walk home about twelve bucks. And you, you just feel what's 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 happening is settling down into the community and it's getting the point. It's just receiving the message. And of course, you know, it was you know, there was a lot going on after that.
0: I wanna come back to um Dr. King, just a moment, but what, I, what I'd like to have you do in, in the few minutes we have left, it would be impossible for any single person to accomplish what you all did during the Civil Rights Movement. And I, I, I wonder if you would just give us a few names of individuals, men and women, who worked for that movement but weren't necessarily household names to America.
1: Well, Andy Young, some of these are familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Cotton, Septima Clark, who was a school teacher from South Carolina who... Elderly, uh, one of the elderly groups, uh, women, and just a magnificent person. Um, Bernard Lafayette, um, he was from uh, Nashville. Uh, Cora Liddell, she was also there. Was had a whole group that that uh, that had come out of Fisk University. Carl Ferris, who was in Dr. King's family, and he had taken the job of uh, being a liaison with the trade union movement. And that they had uh, he had helped win the hospital strike in Charleston, South Carolina. Carl died early of a, a wound that he had suffered in his head when he was in college in the Midwest. He had been beaten by the police and he got a tumor there. But he was very he he was head of the he was head of the labor department of SCLC, mm-hmm. and uh, very 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 good time. Um So those come to mind. Mm-hmm. In addition to the big three, you know, Dr. Ping, you know, and Roy Wilkins, and so were the people mm-hmm. that were heading up the organizations, but these were the were the bright, able, dedicated people down at the level of really getting together with the folks. Um, Birmingham, in Birmingham, of course, it was Fred Shelsworth and um, a couple of people over in Bessemer. Every city in the South had a Monday night meeting in which uh, You know, people worked out what they do at church and then what they do as what kind of church work they do on Monday night. And that was in uh, having meetings of the movement, Fred Sheldsworth and people like that. If I had the time, I could put down another 20 names. But it's it's (laughs) everyday working people who work, you know, who worked all day and then work in in, in the evening on the movement needs.
0: That was an important point, that for a lot of you, the movement was just part of your life. And whatever you did to earn money, there was still this movement that was almost like a second job.
1: Well, I've been in the, in the insurance business, you know, when I told you about the letter I sent them to help out. But um, we used to carry, we used to meet every Monday night. You know, the NAACP was outlawed in, at Birmingham, in Alabama. So we had the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. <laughs> Which used to be called NAACP. That's the only way we survive. We, Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Well, we met on Monday night, and the, the slogan around the South was that you know we go to church on Sunday, and do the religious thing what the church needs, and then we do to go meet Monday night to do the movement's business, <laughs> and that was the relationship. So, and there were people who were just as dedicated to coming to the Monday night meeting as they were to going to church on Sunday. But now just imagine that we, the NAACP couldn't operate in Alabama. The state legislature outlawed NAACP, so we had the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Now outlaw that. It's <laughs> 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 like, whoa, you, you outlawed the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights? W- w- wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, it's laughable now, but that's what we went to. Mm-hmm. in order to survive, in order to be, and so I was about to say, in our insurance business, we, we were monthly premium, you know, it was like monthly premium kick collecting uh, insurance, and we would carry the movement's program that whole week after the Monday night meeting, whatever the the meeting had decided upon. We would circulate petitions all during the week that we were out on the field about what the movement had done Monday night and come back to the, Come on back to the next meeting, you know. I mean, that was how tied, how closely tied our professional activity was. Well, with all that
0: you shared today, let me ask you, uh, with all of your vast experience and knowledge, are you hopeful about present-day America?
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm hopeful about it because you can't do nothing if you lose hope. or To lose hope is, uh, is a paralysis. Things are still. They're, they're, things are possible, simply because people make them possible. We we learn from experience, and experience us teaches us what is possible to do at a given moment and what is not possible to do. But we can always find an outlet for something creative to do that will keep hope alive. And that was one of the slogans of Jesse Jackson's uh, movement. You the Jesse Jackson's movement, you know. Mm-hmm. Of, People United to Serve Humanity. Keep hope alive. Without hope, people will just give up. And you cannot give up on this monster you're dealing with in the United States. Now, that's that's a form of suicide. So we keep hope alive simply because there is a way. that We have to search for it. But people want to be respected. People want to live in a society that is a comfort for everybody. People want to live in a society where their children can get a good education. People want to live in a society where there's a, a reasonable good job, where you can save a little money and perhaps buy a house or send your kids to college. These aims are the very basis for hope. If people couldn't hope they could do that, you know, that that would, you know, wow. Can you imagine people giving up on all that? So keeping hope alive is the generator for great movements developing. But you have to have time and patience and insight and the lessons of history and the building of community because people, when they feel they have something to share, they are at their best. We're not at our best in selfishness. We're at our best when we have something to share. To share in a movement gives it strength, but it keeps the possibilities open for victory. And we've had more victories than we've had defeats. we will going to have some more defeats, but we're going to have some more victories too. That is what we pass on to each generation, you see. That um, victories are possible, and that in the last analysis, the willingness of people to make some sacrifice to gain these victories is where the hope lies for each generation that comes uh, into our world. The pain we have to suffer is not a normalcy, but it is uh, a reward that is, in other words, by the pain we go through sometimes, we have made a sacrifice that makes it possible for another generation to enjoy something. That's what we're looking at now, you know. I mean, a lot of pain, a lot of pain. But it's not for nothing. Black lives matter, uh there is no future in a society that has 600 military bases all over the world. That's all. That's new foolishness. That's ridiculous. I mean, supposing every big country in the world had 600 military bases around the world, what would the world look like? We, we, we're not fantasizing. We think that, uh, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about people who remain in the movement and and try to pass on some experiences to each generation. It's because we have belief in the basic humanity of human beings. Now, we have, to, we have to convert a lot of people who have lost much of that humanity because they have had indoctrination that uh, makes them uh, callous and so forth. But um, in the last analysis, the things we fight for every day, the right to a good job, the right to a nice community, uh, the friendship of our communities, having a good school for the children to go through, uh, having health care so that everybody, anybody can get sick but to have a health care system that is operated in your benefit. Uh, these are the things that make us human, and uh, we, we fight to remain consistent with that because the opposite is not who we really are.
0: Jack O'Dell, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you on The Public Morality. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation, my brother, and I hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Well, I'm, I'm planning on it, but, but, and we're going to do this before your 93rd birthday. We're going we're <laughs> to get you on <laughs> before that.
1: Well, I wish all the best to your listeners, and I hope they they find in every program that you're, you're on, they find some hopeful messages that they can uh, have little get-togethers around, uh, and we can all share because in sharing these, We can see the tomorrows that we all want.
0: Next time on The Public Morality, we speak with Cornell professor and author of The Half Has Never Been Told, Edward Baptist, about the cotton industry in the 19th century and its overall economic impact to boost the American economy. And Reverend Will Bass will join us, the executive director of the Institute for Dismantling Racism, here on The Public Morality. Tuesdays at 7 p.m. right here on 90.5 FM WSNC. And now for my closing remarks. I interviewed Jack O'Dell, who was truly one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement and thus one of America's unsung heroes. In a career spanning more than 50 years, he organized labor unions, wrote the first anti-Vietnam War editorial in a black periodical, and played critical roles in numerous civil rights campaigns, including the epic struggle in Birmingham. His book, Climbing Jacob's Ladder, The Writings of Jack O'Dell, should be required reading for anyone committed to the Edict of Justice. It was a cruel irony of history in that a group of citizens who put the elasticity of Jeffersonian democracy to test and the only way the federal government would support their noble cause would be to dictate who could openly participate in their movement. What ultimately happened to Odell remains with us today. Cold War fears of communism have been replaced by 21st century fears of terrorism. Each day we bear witness to the paralyzing impact fear has on our democracy. But Odell is not bitter. He remains the same prisoner of hope today that he was in 1963, which ultimately led to the nation moving closer to its own democratic values and toward the utopian goal of a more perfect union. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.